Konisti, how ye? Welcome to the Candle Tales podcast. We are breathing life back into Irish myth with traditional storytelling accompanied by music. My name is Aaron Hegarty and this week we have the story of the soul cages told by my sister, Surika Hegarty, the other co-founder of Candle Tales. This one's kind of creepy, so stay tuned for more stories. We're leaning into folk tales this month. We've had, well, more folk tales this month than we've ever released before. And we have our birthday special coming soon as well. We have a very special guest coming on on Sunday to chat about folk tales, stories and the likes. So stay tuned for that. And do get in touch if you want to hear or mention any themes or ideas that'll come up for you. If you'd like to contribute to these podcasts, go to patreon.com forward slash candletales. We wouldn't be able to make these podcasts without our support. So thank you for those people who do that. Thank you a lot. And sit back there now and listen to this week's story. Hey Zorka, take it away. Jack Doherty fished the same cove as his father before him and his father before him. Three generations of fishermen, all of them named Jack. And there was a great living to be had out of that little cove, because it was in a very fortuitous place. Indeed, that was how Jack wooed a wife to come and live with him so far out of town. You see, he told her, whenever there's a storm, time to time, ships go down. Now, I'm not one of those that goes out with a lantern pretending to be a lighthouse and lures a ship onto the rocks. God forbid. No. In fact, I go out in my boat and I try and rescue as many sailors as I can when the waves calm down enough to let me. But the cargo now is a different matter. Once the cargo that's in that ship's hold gets out of the ship's hold because of the storm, well, it's anyone's for the taking, you see. Free and legal and everything. And so whatever just happens to wash up on the shore here, well, that's mine. To keep or to sell as I wish. And indeed, Jack was able to keep his wife better dressed than any woman in the parish on a Sunday. And so Bridie Doherty was well pleased with the match she had made. The only problem as far as she was concerned, was that her husband was an awful dreamer. There were days he'd go out in his fishing boat and he wouldn't catch a single fish. And it wasn't that the weather was bad. Other men would have caught fish. Other men would have come home with their nets filled. But Jack had a way of going off in a daydream sometimes. And when she asked him, for maybe the hundredth time, At last, he told her. I'm looking, he said, for a marrow. A marrow, said she. A marrow, said Jack. My father was great friends with a marrow. And my grandfather was great friends with a marrow. I've heard about marrows all my life. And sometimes I see them swimming just under the waves. And so I sort of follow after them to see, can I catch one? Or not catch one, but catch up to one. Have a chat, you know. Now, Bridie might have had a little bit more of an objection to this line of thinking if her husband hadn't had a particularly lucrative sideline. For the very next day, there was a storm. 
And the day after that, Jack went out and he netted half a dozen sailors, bringing them back safely. And after that, a clear dozen barrels of imported brandy that he went to sell to the gentry in town. And sure, who could object to a husband like that? Now, whenever a storm like that rolled in and Jack was able to make such a good catch of it, he always gave himself a couple of days off afterwards to go on his hunt for the Merrill. Never mind that he'd had a few days off before it as well. But this time, Jack was finally lucky. His persistence paid off. And at a little cove, just a little way down the shore, he saw a great big flat rock. And on top of that rock was a marrow, large as life and twice as ugly, with his long green hair and his green scaly skin, and his hands with claws on the ends of them and webbing between the fingers, and his hair long and tangled as seaweed, and his red eyes. And beside him, on the flat rock, a little three-cornered red hat. And this marrow was jumping into the water and jumping back out again, shooting up like a cork, landing on the flat rock and then diving below the waves again. And Jack couldn't make out. Was he playing at something or hunting? Was it a sport or was it in earnest? But the marrow looked up then and with a flash of those red eyes caught sight of Jack. And before Jack could say a word, he'd snatched up the red cap, jammed it on his green head, and dove beneath the waves, leaving not a ripple behind him. After that, Jack came back as often as he could to the Merrow Cove to see the Merrow Rock, but he didn't see the Merrow again for a long time, until he went on a day when the waves were high, and it was on a day like that that he saw the Merrow at his sport again, jumping in and out of the water. And it was then Jack realised it was the weather brought the marrow out. And so any time the waves were a little bit high and the wind was a little bit strong, Jack would go back to the marrow cove, hoping to catch a glimpse. And he often did. But he was trying to pluck up the courage to go and speak to the marrow. Because after all, his grandfather didn't say that he'd seen a marrow playing in the waves, no. His grandfather had tales of a great friendship with a marrow and going to visit him in his house under the ocean and everything. And so Jack kept going back to the marrow cove whenever the waves were high. One day, Jack misjudged. The waves were high when he set out, but by the time he got to the marrow cove, the waves were looking very threatening indeed dashing against the coast, tossing him in his little fishing boat. Jack began to fear that a storm was blowing in. By the time he got to the Merrow Cove, he decided to take shelter in a cave nearby. And as he went in, what did he see? But the same Merrow sitting there, regarding him with that steady red gaze. He could see him up close now and the marrow was a fearsome sight, powerfully built with thickly muscled arms and chest. The skin 
green and scaled as a fish. The nose upturned as a pig. The hair thick and dark as seaweed. And those gleaming little red eyes that regarded him. That regarded him unblinking. Jack said to himself, well, boy, it's now or never. And he took his courage in both of his hands and he said, good afternoon to you. My name's Jack Doherty. How do you do? The Marrow said nothing for a moment. And Jack did not know if he'd understood. He was about to speak again when the Marrow blinked. And his face broke into a ghastly smile. And he said, Jack. Doherty. Jack Doherty. Is it Jack Doherty you are? And are you any relation to Jack Doherty and his father, Jack Doherty? And Jack said, well, I'm the third of my name, sir. You see, I live in a little house up the coast from here. The same house where my father and grandfather lived. And uh, yes, well, I suppose I am. A relation to them. And the Marrow said to Jack, and tell me now, Jack Doherty, are you as good a drinker as your grandfather, Jack Doherty? Or are you as poor a drinker as your father, Jack Doherty? For he had no head for drink at all. He was a disgrace. Now, Jack felt a welter of conflicting emotions. It was good to hear his grandfather praised by Amero, but a bit of a blow to hear his father so put down. And so he opted for the safest bet and said, well, I can drink as well as my namesake Jack Doherty can drink. And Amero gave a strange cackling laugh. That's well, Jack, that's well. I'd hate to see you were as poor a drinker as Jack Doherty. But we must put this to the test sometime. You'll come and visit me, won't you, Jack? You'll come and visit me. And we'll see, won't we, Jack? And Jack swallowed and said, Yes, yes, I would love to come and visit you. Uh, When? Where? Only name the time and the place and I'll be there. The Marrow said, I'll meet you. Here, three days hence. Now I have to be off, for there's a storm coming in, Jack Doherty. And that means there's work to be had for me and my kind. And with that, the Marrow stood up, put his red cap on his head, and dove under the waves without giving Jack a second look. Now the whole encounter had been so strange that Jack didn't want to say a word to his wife. He didn't want to worry her. So he kept it to himself that he was going to go visiting a Merrill three days from then. And sure enough, it was as the Merrill had predicted. A storm rolled in later that day and blackened the coast for two more days after that. And Jack was kept very busy, going out and trying to pluck sailors from the waves when he could. And afterwards, in gathering what was washed up and floating. 
but he kept his appointment with the Merrill. Nothing could have prevented him from that. Three days after their first meeting, he was there in the Merrill Cove, waiting with bated breath. And he saw the Merrill come up out of the waves with his three-cornered red hat on his head. And in his hand, he was holding another red hat. He waved at Jack and called out to him, Come here, Jack. Put this hat on your head and follow me. And how am I to follow you? Jack asked, nervous now because, like every fisherman he knew, Jack had never learned to swim, it being considered ill luck to tempt fate. But the Merrow smiled his ghastly smile and said, Don't worry about that, Jack. You just hold on to me and I'll bring you the way. And so saying, the Merrow flung himself off the flat rock and under the waves. Jack jammed the red cap on his head and leapt in after the Merrow. And the cold, dark waters closed around him like a fist. Jack had never felt such cold in his life. It seemed to suck the vigour from him. But he felt a strong, scaly hand wrap around his wrist. And he felt himself pulled and tugged down and down and down. Jack held his breath until he thought his lungs might burst. He could see barely anything in that grey-green water. The little light filtering through was dim and turbulent. And he thought his lungs might burst when he saw black spots swimming before his eyes. And at last, when he could bear it no longer, he gasped in. And much to Jack's surprise, he did not die. He did not drown. He could breathe underwater. Of course, he'd heard the tales of the Merrill's red cap, but it's one thing to hear a story, and it's another to trust your life to the thing when the cold water is pressing around you. The Merrill kept pulling on Jack, and down and down and down they went, until the depths of the ocean. And then the Merrow took a strange turn that Jack could not quite describe, and suddenly, suddenly there was air around them, and not water. They were standing on a dry floor, and up above them, the sea was like the sky, and there were shoals of fish swimming around like birds flying. But where they stood, everything was dry and cosy. And the Merrow gave his strange cackling laugh to see Jack stare about him so and said, Now, you didn't think one could live so comfortably under the sea, did you, Jack? But come on, till I show you to my house. Jack followed the Merrow to a cosy little cottage that stood there on the seafloor. Inside were two young Merrows, busy, cooking a feast and the marrow led Jack to the table 
Now the table was not particularly well suited to the place, being only bare planks, unvarnished and without even a tablecloth. But the drink that his host produced was top-notch, imported brandy by the barrel, and the marrow was generous in his portions, poured out mugfuls for Jack and for himself, and the two of them knocked them back. And when the food was served, they kept drinking the brandy as if it was water. And Jack thought to himself, being under the sea must be having a cooling effect on his head, because usually he wasn't the best at handling the drink, but this was not making him dizzy, nor making him sick. And if the tablecloth was missing, it was no indication of the quality of the food either. The marrow spread before Jack a feast worthy of a king. That is, a king on a Friday, of course, because there was no meat in it, only fish, fish of a hundred kinds, fish and mussels and shellfish and seafood, dressed with greens that Jack realised were seaweed. They ate, they drank, they shared stories, and the marrow declared Jack the equal of Jack Doherty, but not Jack Doherty. And late in the evening, the marrow said to Jack, would you like to see my treasure room? Jack said yes, by all means, he would love to see his friend's treasure room. But then he said, now, hang on, this is a very strange turn of affairs, for you know my name, and you know my father's name and my grandfather's name, but I'm after sitting down to dinner with you, and I don't know your name at all. And the Merrill laughed, his strange, cracking laugh, and said, You may call me Kumara. Kumara led Jack into his treasure room, and there Jack saw the harvest of a thousand shipwrecks. For he might have collected what floated, but he could see now that Kumara was the one who was gathering all that sank along that coast. There were figureheads of ships. There were glass portholes with brass around. There were even the spyglasses that sailors use at sea. All kinds of glittering treasure spread out before him. But one thing caught his eye. It was a very strange collection of what looked like small lobster pots, all arranged on shelves. Jack asked Kumara, what are those? And Kumara said, well now, Jack, those are the soul cages. Jack was troubled to hear this. Soul cages? What do you mean soul cages? How can you put a soul in a cage? Well, said Kumara, whenever there's a storm, I put these out. And when the sailors drown in the storm, their little souls come wriggling out of their mouths and they start to swim away. 
But it's so cold under the ocean. And so dark, Jack. But when they see my little cages, so snug, so inviting, they turn around from where they're going. And they swim in. And then I close the doors, latch them up nice and snug, and bring them home. And that is how I keep them, Jack. Warm and cozy and dry and snug. Poor little souls shouldn't be out in the wide world, not without a body to house them. Now Jack couldn't think what to say after that. Put him in a strange mood. Made him feel an awful shiver up and down the back of his neck. But he didn't think it right to question his host, who was grinning at him. And so he changed the subject and asked about something else. And after a while of showing him his treasures, Kumara brought them back out for Dyokondoros, a nightcap, one for the road, before Jack should go back home. And it was then that Jack thought to ask, How? Am I going to get back home, Kumara? We're a long way under the ocean. I don't think I'd be able to find my way. Can I keep the little three-cornered red hat? Kumara laughed his strange laugh and said, Jack, they're not so easy as that to come by. Those red hats. No, you may not keep but I'll give you a loan of mine. And when you come back to the surface, only throw it down. And if ever you have need of me, Jack Barty, all you need do is drop a rock off that flat stone and I'll see the sign and I'll come right up. Jack put the borrowed hat on his head He still did not know how he was going to get home. But then, Kumaro walked him to the edge of that dry place under sea, caught hold of Jack in his powerful webbed hands and flung him into the cold, dark waters above. Jack gasped in shock at the cold, and then again in shock at his speed. He was shooting like a cork through cold, dark waters. And he came flying up beside the Merrill Rock. And then, when he was standing safely on that flat rock again, feeling all that brandy suddenly make itself known in his head, he took the red cap off and cast it onto the waves. And he saw it sink like something under the water had reached up and grabbed it down. Jack's wife was none too impressed with him when he came home drunk 
and at work the next morning. But Jack was preoccupied. She could see he was uneasy and something was troubling him deeply. And she asked him what bothered him. And he asked her, would she ever consider making a little pilgrimage to Crow Patrick for him? Perhaps she could do it with her sister. Bridie thought on this. Thought it sounded like a good idea. It was something she'd been thinking of for a while, in fact, which Jack knew well. And so he gently encouraged her to do that. Sooner rather than later. Because Jack could not get the soul cages out of his mind. Souls of drowned sailors, all trapped in little rows in the house of a marrow under the sea. It did not seem right to him somehow that a soul should be taken and trapped like that. He wondered if his father had known, if his grandfather had known, and if they had, what they'd thought about it. But for himself, he could not sleep for thinking about it. He knew he had to do something. And so he made a plan. Now Jack knew for himself that being under the ocean had given him something of an edge when it came to holding on to his drink. But he thought it safe to assume that the marrow would have the same prodigious appetite for the strong stuff above the waves as he did below. And so he thought to himself, that marrow is used to brandy and wine imported from foreign countries. I wonder now, has a creature like that ever tasted pochi? Bridie's brother had given him a bottle not long before, and Jack had put away for a special occasion, and this seemed to him as special as they came. And so the very next day, after his wife had set off on her pilgrimage, Jack went down to the Merrow Rock and heaved a big stone into the ocean. It had barely sunk from sight when up popped Kumara like a cork, landing lightly on his feet on that same flat rock. Well, Jack, said the Merrill, how are you feeling today? And Jack said, I'm feeling right enough, but I was wondering if I could return the favour and invite you to my house for dinner, seeing as you had me at yours. And the Merrill agreed and they arranged for him to come to Jack's house the next day. Jack was an indifferent cook, but he supposed, quite correctly, that food would not be the most important thing that day. He set up the bottle of pochin and made sure that he had the drink on one side so that when he was pouring the pochin for the marrow, he'd be able to pour water into his own cup with the marrow none the wiser. So he hoped. And then he saw the strange figure of Kumara trudging up the coast towards his little house. They sat down 
and applied themselves to the French wine that Jack had already told Bridie that he'd sold in town. And after that, and a light meal, they moved on to the brandy. Now Jack's head was starting to heat and starting to spin, and so he asked Kumara if he'd ever had such a thing as putching. Putching, said the Merrill. No, I don't believe I ever have, Jack. What is Pudgy? And Jack poured out a great big mug and handed it to the Merrill and toasted him with his own mug full of water. And the two of them knocked it back. And it didn't take more than two glasses of Pudgy for the Merrill to start singing. And Jack could never remember after that any of the songs he had sung, except that they were strange. And although they were merry, they were somehow haunting as well. But the Merrow sang, and the Merrow danced about the room until suddenly the Merrow fell down in a heap, snoring. Now Jack waited a little while just to make sure that Kumara was fully asleep. And then he reached over and plucked the red cap from the Merrow's head, put it on his own head and ran out the door. He raced down the shore to the Merrow Cove and he jumped into the waves near the Merrow Rock. And it was not like swimming with Kumara this time. This time he was going under his own power. And his own power in the water was not so great. He could feel his clothes filled with water swirling around him, pulling him back. He could see the silvery air bubbles trailing up above him. But he pointed his head downwards and he kicked and he pulled at the waves, pulling himself down and down and down into the depths until finally he tumbled out onto that dry, strange shore. All was eerie and quiet. Jack had not noticed so much the last time he was here, but this plain of Kumara's was a silent place. When he went to the cottage of Kumara, he was worried that he might find the young Merrows still inside. But there was no sign of them, nor of anyone else. Jack crept in, alert to every sound, but he could hear nothing. He made his way through the rude kitchen of Kumara with its bare planks for the table and chairs and into what the Marrow had called his treasure cave. And there he saw the soul cages, sitting there neatly row on row on row. Jack took one out and turned it over in his hands. It looked like a tiny lobster pot, but he could not see if there was anything inside. It looked empty to him, but there was a little opening that could be latched and unlatched. And Jack unlatched it and flung it wide and waited to see. Would there be a flash of light? A sigh? 
a burst of heavenly music. But there was nothing. Nothing at all happened. Jack felt discouraged, but he remembered the priest had once said to him that no mortal could see an immortal soul. So he had to console himself by saying that, well, if there were souls, he wouldn't be able to see them anyway. He took down the soul cages one by one, opened them up, left them sitting open till he got to the very last one, and then from the first went about closing them all again and putting them all back where he'd found them. It was a long time Jack Doherty spent at the soul cages, and every moment his heart was crossways in his throat, waiting for the footfall of Kumara coming home, or more likely for an angry roar of a marrow whose treasure had been tampered with. But there was no sign and no sound, and Jack worked all through the night until the next day. Now Bridie Doherty had set off the previous day to go to her sister's house and make a little pilgrimage with her sister, and she'd been mightily looking forward to it. That was until she got to her sister's house. And within five minutes of being with her sister, she remembered a quarrel that the two of them had had when they were 14, that Bridie felt her sister had never properly apologised for. And when she brought this up merely to clear the air, well, it kicked the whole thing off again. And so Bridie decided the best thing to do would be to leave off with the pilgrimage idea for now and go back home to her husband and try again when her sister was in a better mood. Coming through the door of their cottage, Bridie saw a terrible sight. The room looked like it had been trashed by vandals. There were empty bottles everywhere and the bottle of pochine that her own brother had given to her husband not long ago was standing there, half empty. Now Bridie felt fury coming down upon her. She could see that some of those bottles of fine French wines were the ones that Jack had sworn to her he'd already sold in the town. She could see as well there was a cask of brandy that had been opened. And then she heard a snore from underneath the table. When she looked, Bridie Doherty got the fright of her life. She had heard it said often enough that drink makes beasts of men. And now she thought she'd seen the fulfilment of the saying. For she left her husband and come back to a beast. She put her apron over her head and sat down in the corner and wept. And this was the scene that Jack came home to, his wife weeping, the marrow still snoring under the table. He managed to calm Bridie down and take the cap off his head and put it back on Kumara's and he told her he would explain everything to her as soon as their guest had left. It was late in the morning when the marrow woke up and he did not say a word to Jack. 
Jack offered him the hair of the dog, and the marrow only glared at him out of those red eyes. And he pulled the red cap down over his head. And he did not walk along the coast to home, but dove off the cliffs near Jack's house, straight into the turbulent water, and was gone. It was then that Jack told Bridie what had happened, of his strange friendship with this Marrow who had known his father and his grandfather before him, and of the Marrow's soul cages. And she was as disturbed as he at the thought of the Marrow keeping captive souls in his little home. So she agreed she could not fault Jack for what he had done, but she said, You cannot go and see that Marrow again, Jack. Jack said, Why not? I can be friends with the Marrow, like my father and grandfather. It's no harm I've done to anybody, and a good deed that I've done to those souls. Besides, you can't see a soul. You can't see a soul, said Bridie. And I can't see a soul. But how old is that Merrill? He looked hale and hearty to me, to have been friends with your grandfather. How long ago was he on the coast, Jack? How old is that Merrill? Jack had not thought of that, and it sat uneasy in his chest. And the next time he saw the marrow, and Kumara invited him below the waves for another drink, Jack. Jack found an excuse not to go. Bridie would prefer it, he said, if the marrow visited them from now on. It made her anxious, this talk of countries under sea and whatnot. Nomero smiled his strange smile and looked at Jack out of his red eyes, and Jack could never tell what he was thinking. But from time to time, Nomero would come to Jack's house, and Jack and Bridie would lay out a feast. And if Nomero visited them, after a storm had been through, Jack would produce the bottle of Pucheen, and Bridie would pour Pucheen into the Merrow's mug and water into her husband's, until the Merrow was singing and then snoring. And then Jack would go down, back down under the waves to the Merrow's little house, back to his cave of treasures, and back to the soul cages. There were more of them every time, but Jack could not tell the new from the old, so just to be sure, he would open them all and give the souls of the poor drowned sailors as much time as he could to get out. And then he would come back as quickly as he could. Kumara never gave any indication that he knew that Jack had tampered with the soul cages. But one day, Jack threw a stone off the marrow rock to invite Kumara to come and sup with them, for there had been a terrible storm the night before, and Jack had been busy rowing out, rescuing sailors from the waves. And the marrow did not appear. And from that, Jack did not know 
had the old Mero died at last had he gone to some other part of the country or had he noticed his treasures had been tampered with Jack never got an answer to that question and from that day on he kept an eye out as he always had for a Mero under the waves but now he was not seeking them to get closer he was keeping an eye out in case Kumara was hunting him This podcast was produced and edited by Oshin Ryan. The story was with Surika Hegarty and the music was Oshin Ryan as well. You can find out more about us on our website, Candlelit Tales, and follow us on all the socials, the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, and that's at Candlelit Tales. Now for videos and live streams, and like and subscribe to the channel on YouTube, which has a Candlelit Tales for Kids playlist, hashtag Candlelittle Tales. Go ahead there and subscribe if you'd like to follow the Candlelit Tales YouTube channel. That'd be great. We have live and stuff going up there. We'll be live live streaming our post show chat coming very soon. So go on there and you know hit the like because subscribing to our channel really helps us grow. Or you can leave a review if you like what we do. If you'd like to give more direct support, you can go to patreon.com forward slash candlelit tales or make a one-off donation through the PayPal button on our website. Now have you subscribed yet? Because we're going to do a live stream uh, kind of chat about all these folktales that we've been doing coming up very soon. And it's our birthday. It'll be really nice if you did it. It's our birthday month. We never really know when our birthday is because it's like, it's basically sound. So this month we're going to do something very special coming at you very soon. Please stay tuned. And we'd love to hear any comments or ideas or mentions or requests and stay tuned for the death series coming in in December where everything withers and dies but that's how we all stay alive stay tuned guys and we'll chat to you soon thanks so much